Grab your Bibles this morning, friends. Turn to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. We are continuing to bring the plane down onto the runway here. We are continuing to wrap up our series in the book of Daniel that we've been in for the entire fall. Right now in the book of Daniel, we're in sort of a mini-series within the series, if you will. The final three chapters of the book of Daniel, chapters 10, 11, and 12, they are one sequence, one account, one narrative, one thing. And what we see in the final three chapters of Daniel is a look at the big picture. Somebody help me out and say the big picture. The big picture. In other words, in Daniel 10, 11, and 12, we're not zoomed in on you and I and, you know, my feelings and my thoughts and my struggles and my challenges and my problems and my goals. And listen, God cares about you. God cares about every little part of your life. Those things are all important. But sometimes what we need is to zoom out and take the lens off of ourselves just for a minute, right? And just take a really wide look at God, and who God is, and what God is doing, and what he's doing in the world, and where he is steering this ship that we're all on as human beings. It's especially important to do this big picture look during uncertain times. How many of you know that you and I are living in uncertain times right now? Yeah, right? We, you don't need me to tell you what they're like because you live them through them yourself, but we've got wars and conflicts and drama and politics and the economy is right out the window and down the drain and, and, and environmental problems and natural disasters and what's going to happen to me and my grocery bill's too high and my gas doesn't last me long enough. What's going to happen? Am I talking to anybody today? This is not part of the sermon. You've, I've had this, you're at the grocery store, you put all your stuff on the, the, the little belt and it's this little pile that's like this big and it's like $100 for this many things. Like it's uncertain times, it's not okay, all right? Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. Okay, thank you. So we live in uncertain times. But as we take a big picture look at who God is and what God is doing, it's gonna encourage us. And in Daniel chapter 11, I'm just going to tip my hand right now, and I'm going to tell you what I hope that you will take away from Daniel chapter 11. I hope that we as the people of God will take away from Daniel chapter 11 a tremendous confidence in the Lord. Confidence in the Lord. Faith in the Lord. Because what we're going to see in Daniel 11 is that God is over world history. He's over it. Right? We look around and say, all these things are happening and there's, it's all out of control. Actually, no, that's not true. Let it be known in the church of God today that there is a God who reigns and rules from a throne. He controls everything that happens and he's victorious over all that happens and his name is Jesus Christ. Do we know that today? Okay, yes, clap for Jesus. That's good, that's good. So what we're gonna do in Daniel 11, it's gonna be a little heady today. Please stay with me, okay? It's gonna be a lot of history in here. Some of you will rejoice greatly. Some of you will cringe a little bit as I say that. Stay with me. Daniel chapter 11 is, how would I say this? In the best, most positive, God-honoring, yay, Jesus kind of way, Daniel 11 is nuts. Like not whoever wrote it is a kook kind of nuts, but like 
It's full of prophecy that's been fulfilled right down to like crazy specific detail. It's like this was either God or this is made up entirely. Hint, it was God. Okay, so what we're going to see is a whole bunch of history, a whole bunch of prophecy. If you're taking notes today, here's what we're going to cover. I'm going to tell you about 29, 29 times that God called it in Daniel 11, where God said, here's what's going to happen in the future, and then it happened exactly how he said it was going to happen. 29 times. Can you handle 29? Good. If you're taking notes, here's also what I want you to do. Write a little number in your margin for me. Write the number 536, 536. Because I want you to remember that number because that is when this was being uttered. When God showed up and gave this word to Daniel, it was in the 530s BC, somewhere around 536 BC. And we're gonna see like three to 400 years of history unfold in the next 40 minutes. And remember when it was spoken, 536 BC. Okay, here we go. Ready? Strap on your seatbelt. We're going today. 29 times God called it in Daniel 11. Number one is this. God predicted that four more kings would arise in the nation and the kingdom of Persia after King Cyrus. So let's read verse 2. It says, Now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. So in 536-ish BC, Cyrus was the king of Persia. They had just become the superpower in the world, the most dominant force, army, empire in the world. And God says there's going to be three more kings, at least three kings, that pop up after Cyrus, and the fourth shall be richer. Now, you'll see in yellow on the screen, this is how this played out historically. You can go read your textbooks. This all happened. After King Cyrus came a guy named Cambyses. I'm sure to get all these names right. He reigned from 530 to 522 BC. After Cambyses came a king named Bardia. He reigned for not very long, less than a year in 522 BC. After Bardia came a guy named Darius I, Histaspes. It's cool to say. He reigned from 522 to 486. His nickname was Darius the Great. And then after Darius the Great came a guy named Xerxes I. How many of you think Xerxes is an awesome name? Just saying. Xerxes. <laughs> okay, we won't go down that road. He reigned from 486 to 465 BC. And just as God said would happen, all these guys were rich and powerful. They were the kings of the nation of Persia. But Xerxes I was richer and greater than those three that came before him. He was super rich, super wealthy, super powerful, super influential. Now, we could stop right there. And I could say, you know, that's pretty cool how God predicted the, the kings that were going to reign for the next like 70 years in this country. Right? I couldn't do that, but God did. We could stop there and it'd be cool enough. But I got 28 more things for you, okay? So God called that. Number two, God called it that Xerxes I was going to fight against Greece. It says that in verse two as well. When he, Xerxes, has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now what's interesting there. Xerxes ended up, mysteriously, almost like God said he would, he invaded the kingdom of Greece in 480 BC. What's interesting about that is Greece was not the world's superpower at that time. They were going to be down the road in another 150 years or so, but they were just another kingdom then. But Xerxes invaded Greece just like God said he would, okay? You still with me so far? 
Okay? Number three, God called it that a mighty king would one day arise from that kingdom of Greece. Verse three says, then a mighty king shall arise who, will, who shall rule with great dominion and shall do as he wills. Now, this is talking about a guy that we've discussed in this book of Daniel a few times already. This was fulfilled in the reign and the rule of Alexander the Great. Remember us talking about him? Here he is again. He ruled the kingdom of Greece from 336 to 323 BC. And he was powerful. He was unlike any king that we'd seen for years before that. His, his forces swept across the known world and spread Greek culture and Greek influence massively, rapidly. There are courses you can take, books you can read about Alexander the Great's leadership and his military tactics. This guy, super important in the history books. And God God predicted it a couple of hundred years before he was going to come around. God said he's going to rise up and he's going to rule. God called that, okay? God also called it, number four, that this king, Alexander the Great, was going to suddenly die. Look at verse four. It says, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. Alexander the Great died suddenly at the age of 32. He's young. He was, that is my age. Stay with us. Help me, Lord. Help me today. He was right at the height of his strength. His kingdom was at the height of its power, and he died suddenly. It's actually uh, sort of a mystery. Not, uh, we're not certain of how he died. Some people, uh, the, common, uh, the common theory is that he died from a fever after he had a big drunken rager one night, and he got sick, and he died. At any rate, he died, just like God said that he would. God called it. Number five, God called it that Alexander the Great's kingdom will be divided amongst people who are not his own heirs. Look at verse four again. It says, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. That means not to his children, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. And you can see that this is exactly what happened. If you read your history books, right? The way it would go back in those days, usually a king would die and it would, uh, the kingdom would then go to his son if he had one, his legitimate uh, next of kin, his, uh, his, his child. Well, Alexander the Great, it's a little bit grisly and gruesome. This is kind of just the way they did business back then. Uh, his two sons were executed in the wake of his own death. Political stuff, it's bad, obviously. But his kingdom was split into four kingdoms ruled by four of his generals just like God said it was going to be. This was 200 years after God called it. It happened. And this, again, being split that way, that's not the way it normally happens. It's not like, oh, well, anyone could have guessed that. No, only God could have done that. Okay, that's what happened. Number six, still with me? We doing okay? All right, all right. Just checking in on you. Number six, the king of the southern kingdom of Greece will be strong but one of his princes will be stronger. So through the rest of Daniel 11, you start to see this language of the king of the north and the king of the south. What that's referring to is when the Greek kingdom split into four parts, two of those parts are those kingdoms of the north and the south. And the king of the south, the first king of the south was a guy named Ptolemy I, king of the south. But it says, look, I'll read you verse five. It says, then the king of the south shall be strong, 
But one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. So what that's saying is out of that southern kingdom, uh, though there's already a king, this Ptolemy I, one of his princes or underlings or someone under his authority is going to rise up and become stronger than him. And that's exactly what happened. Ptolemy I had uh, one of his underlings named Seleucus. Seleucus. Sounds like all I can hear is mucus when I say that. I don't know why. I'll pray about that anyway. Seleucus became the king of the north, and he, his kingdom overshadowed the, the glory and the pomp and the power of Ptolemy's kingdom of the south. And it so happened that in the coming years and decades and centuries, whichever one of those two kings happened to kind of be the strongest king, that king generally also had control of the Holy Land of Israel. We're going to come back to this later, but Israel was right smack in the middle of this southern and this northern kingdom. And they were always getting bounced around. Now we're being ruled by the northern kingdom. Now we're being ruled by the southern kingdom. And that's how it would go in their history from there. Number seven, these two kingdoms of the north and the south, these split off kingdoms that belong to Greece, these two kingdoms will attempt an alliance, but it's going to fail. Verse 6 says this, after some years they shall make an alliance. See where I got that? Right there. And the, daughters, the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. So years later, in 250 B.C., there's now different kings of the north and south. The other ones have, have died. They've moved on. There was a marriage that happened between these two kingdoms. Antiochus II, who was the king of the north. By the way, I don't expect you to remember all these names and places, okay? And dates. There's not going to be a test on this later, right? We already gave you your name tag. That's your freebie for today. And you're going to get a budget later. So that's all the handouts you get. Okay. Anyway, 250 BC, Antiochus II of the north married the daughter of the king of the south, whose name was Berenice. People would do that back in those days. They would give uh, one of their children to be married in, in hopes that, you know, it's sort of, you ever read Romeo and Juliet? Kind of like in that. Well, these two families are feuding, but, you know, if they married each other, you know, we'd get along better. Kind of like that. Well, it didn't work. In 246 BC, Antiochus II decided he wanted his other wife back, his former wife back. Her name was Laodicea. And Laodicea was obviously not very happy about the events that had transpired over the four years previous because she murdered Berenice, the other woman, and she murdered Berenice's son. That's why it says right here, this woman, Berenice, will not retain the strength of her arm. This alliance will not work out. God called it. God called it. Number eight, a relative of this woman, Berenice, was going to rise to power, right? So even though she was executed and murdered and, and her child was murdered, Someone else in her family was going to rise up. Look what it says in verse 7. And a branch from her roots, from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. That's talking about, this was fulfilled in her brother, Ptolemy III, who ascended to power of the southern kingdom in 246 BC. Read your history book. This is all in there. God called it, okay? I'm not making this up. Number nine, God called it that King Ptolemy III was going to attack the king of the north and he was going to win. Not, not only are they going to fight, here's who's going to win the fight. Look at verse 7. Again, it says, He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. That means he's going to win. By this time, the king of the north was a guy named Seleucus. 
the second, Callinicus, and it says that Ptolemy III invaded Seleucus II's kingdom, and he won, and he actually took the fortress of Antioch in the 240s BC. This is almost 300 years after God said it would happen. I can't do that. You're pretty smart. You can't do that either, okay? All right. Number 10, God called it that there would then be a pause in the hostility. So they're going to fight for a while, then they're going to stop fighting. Verse 8 and 9, it says this, He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and metal images and precious, precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. That's what happened. There was a pause in the conflict between these two kingdoms for about 20 years, from the 240s to the 220s BC. You know, at one point, the king of the north sort of stuck his nose in to see what was going on in the king of the south, but he said, no, I'm going to back off. No fighting happened, just like God said would happen. However, number 11, God called it that the next generation would start fighting again. Right? Your kids won't let you down. They'll pick up the fight for you. Verse 10 says this. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. This was fulfilled, as you can see here, by the next generation. Antiochus III and Ptolemy IV in the 220s BC, they started fighting again. Go read your history book. It's in there. That's what happened. Number 12, God called it that Antiochus the North, or Anti Antiochus the North, Antiochus the Third from the North, and Ptolemy the Fourth from the South, they were going to fight back and forth for some years. It's not going to be a short conflict, it's going to be an extended conflict. Verse 11 to 13 says, Then the king of the South, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the North. He shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. He shall cast down tens of thousands, but shall not prevail. For the king of the North shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. That was fulfilled in the 210s BC, where these kings just fought continuously back and forth, battle after battle after battle. They obviously hated each other and kept on fighting. But God said it was going to happen. Number 13, God predicted it that in those days, Israel was going to get involved in the conflict. Right now, they just sort of been caught in the middle, and the north and the south were fighting all around them. But look what it says here in verse 14. In those days, many shall arise against the king of the south. And here it is, the violent among your own people. That's talking about the Israelites. He's talking to Daniel here. The violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land, that's Israel, with destruction in his hand. Now, the history books tell us that there were some, not all, but some radical Jews who got involved in this time, and they sided with Antiochus III of the north. See, right now in that time, they were being ruled and lorded over by the kingdom of the south, and they said, we don't like that, so we're going to side with the king of the north, and they joined in and rebelled in the 200s and 190s BC. Now, it says in that verse we just read that it will fail. 
right? The Israelites are going to try to join in to work an outcome that's favorable for them. They're going to try to take matters into their own hands. Anybody ever done that in your life, trying to do things your own way instead of just waiting on the Lord? Yeah, they tried to do that and said it's going to fail. So what we're going to see here as this unfolds, the kingdom of the north does take over and they do become the overlords over the Israelites. And years later, there's going to be a terrible king that does horrible damage to Israel that came out of the kingdom of the north. And it kind of originated there. And God said it was going to happen because he called it. Somebody say he called it. He called it. Okay, moving on. Number 14 God called it that Antiochus III would offer his daughter in marriage to Ptolemy V for political favor. Here's another one of these marriage sham alliance thingies right here. Verse 17, this is what it says. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. So the king of the north says, here's how I'm going to cause some harm. I'll give my daughter to marry the king of the south, and she'll seduce him and fill his head with bad advice and bad counsel, and, and she'll weaken him, and then I'll come in and I'll strike. Well, it didn't work. Here's what history tells us. Antiochus did give his daughter Cleopatra. She's not the famous Cleopatra, by the way. I thought that'd be pretty cool, but that's a different Cleopatra. But she was given to Ptolemy V of the South in marriage. But the problem was she decided she liked her new husband better than her dad, and she sided with him instead of her father. So his plan didn't work. Somebody say, wah, 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 wah. Nice try. But God called it. There you go. Number 15. God called it that Antiochus III of the north, his reign was going to end in humiliation, right? He's a mighty king. He's a powerful guy, but it's not going to end in glory for him. Verse 18 and 19 says this, Afterward, he, Antiochus, shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. You know what shall not be found means? He, he's going to be dead. That's what's going to happen to him. Now, this marriage plan didn't work, right? Wah, wah, didn't work out. So he's getting frustrated. So what he does, he starts to try to take coastal lands and cities. And the history books tell us that's exactly what Antiochus did. He moved on cities like Sidon and, and took them over, well-fortified places, all that. And then he had this idea in his mind. He was going to invade a different part of Greece. I'm going to take a different part of the kingdom. But it says that a, a commander is going to put an end to his insolence. This is, this is just funny to me. There was a Roman commander, let me get his name right, Lucius Cornelius Scipio. Sounds like a luxury car. <laughs> he was a Roman commander, and he came to the aid of the king of the south. And he said, turn back. Rome wasn't even the superpower of this day, but this Roman guy showed up and sent Antiochus packing. And he was mad. He was frustrated. So this is what it says in here. He turns his face to his own kingdom. Uh, when he lost that battle with the Roman commander involved in it, uh, he had to pay a whole bunch of money as reparations for losing the war. And uh, he was broke. Antiochus III needed money really badly. So what he did is he tried to, uh, he tried to raid a temple in the land of Babylon, and he was killed by locals. He wasn't even killed by an army, just like the local goon squad showed up and did away with them. That's no way for a mighty king to end. That's not how it's supposed to go. But God called it. Ding, ding, ding. He died in 187 BC. 
not in glory, but in humiliation. Number 16, after Antiochus III, God called it that there would be another king, and this king would try to tax Israel. Look at verse 20 right here. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. That's talking about Israel. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So this was fulfilled in the reign of the next king of the north, Seleucus IV. He reigned from 187 to 175 BC. And as you can see here, he tried to raid or tax the temple in Jerusalem. He said, I need money, right? My dad lost the war and now I inherited his debt and I got to pay it. It's my problem now. So he decided he was going to try to plunder the temple and tax Jerusalem. But these plans did not come to fruition. And then it says here that he's going to die unceremoniously, not even in anger or in battle. Seleucus IV, he died when one of his advisors poisoned him. He wasn't even fighting a battle. That was 175 BC. All right, you're doing great. Keep going here. Stay with me. Number 17, God called it that after Seleucus IV, there would rise an illegitimate king. Illegitimate. Someone who wasn't supposed to be the king. Look at verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries, it says. This was fulfilled in the reign of a guy that we've also talked about in this series before, a guy by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Remember talking about Antiochus Epiphanes a few weeks ago? Say yes. Okay, good answer. Antiochus Epiphanes, he was not next in line to the throne. He had a brother who was older than him who was supposed to be the king, but his brother died. Uh, he was actually poisoned too, I believe. And so now the throne becomes Antiochus's, though he wasn't really supposed to be the king. God called it. Number 18, Antiochus Epiphanes. God called it that he would be more powerful than the kings that came before him. He's not just going to be some other king, some random king. He's going to be powerful. Look at the verse 22. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. So right there it says, his army is going to sweep others away. Others are going to be broken before him. He's powerful, a powerful king. In here, when it talks about the prince of the covenant, I have it written here as well. Many believe this is likely referring to the removal of the high priest in Israel, whose name was Onias III. Basically, Antiochus IV hated Israel, and he wanted everyone in Israel to act like Greeks, act like Greek customs and cultures, and here's the things that we do. And this guy, Onias, was the high priest, and he said, we're not going to follow you. We serve the Lord. We're not going to follow you. And Antiochus didn't like it, so he just removed him. See you later. You're done. And he put someone else in his place, uh, sort of a yes man, if you will. It says, he will become strong with a small people, it says up here. Many believe that to be talking about how there were some in Jerusalem or in Israel at the time who sort of strayed from their faith sort of became worldly, said, you know what? It's going to be easier for me to follow the king of Greece than it is for me to follow the king of heaven. I don't want to be that odd duck that stands out. I want to just do what everyone else is doing and, and buddy up to the systems of the world. This says that those people, Antiochus loved them. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. He's powerful. He's cunning. He is flattering. 
He's sneaky. He's sinister. This guy's bad news, basically, is the story of him. That's number 18. Number 19, God called it that Antiochus would attack Ptolemy VI of the south. Look at this. Verse 25 says, He shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Now, Antiochus, the history books tell us, he attacked Ptolemy VI in 170 to 169 B.C. God called that. 350 years after God spoke it, it happened. Number 20, God called it that Ptolemy VI of the south would lose. And not only would he lose the battle, he would lose in part because he got bad counsel from his people. Look at this, verse 26. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. So here's what happened to Ptolemy VI in these days. He devised a battle plan against Antiochus Epiphanes of the north, and his battle plans got leaked. That's what the history books tell us. And that's kind of a fail. Now, okay, we have this thing called the internet, and everyone's always recording stuff on their phones. It's really easy for things to leak today. Back in those days, they didn't even have the internet, and his plans still got out. Wah, wah. And... Also, Ptolemy VI had counselors that advised him around this time, you should go up and take the land of Palestine. That'll strengthen. You can get goods and riches and supplies from up there. It was bad counsel. It was a bad idea. But he followed them. Even those who ate his food, his own trusted counselors, led him in a bad way, and he lost. God called it. I can't call that. You can't call it. You're very smart. God can call it. Number 21, Antiochus Epiphanes and Ptolemy VI would make a phony alliance. God called that. Verse 27 says, As for the two kings of the north and south, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They will speak lies at where? The same table. <clears throat> but to no avail. History tells us that these two kings formed an alliance together in 169 BC. Just like God said. Now, neither of them, I don't think, planned to honor the alliance. It's one of those, hey, we could be friends while well, I like stick the knife in your back while you're not looking. Kind of one of those deals. But it didn't really amount to anything. But God called it nonetheless. Number 20. What are we on? 22. Antiochus Epiphanes will come back from Egypt and he's going to start plotting against Israel. God called this. Look at verse 28. It says, he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. That's talking about God's people. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. So Antiochus Epiphanes, he was on his way back home up to the north and he had to pass through the land of Israel. And he was worried about an insurrection happening there. And so he stole and plundered stuff from the temple and went about his way. I'll say this, stuff about Israel in here, plots against God's people are common all throughout history. You read the Bible, all through the Bible, and it's because of what we talked about last week, spiritual warfare, right? We have an enemy, there's a war happening, so even though this looks just like, oh, I don't know, this is some earthly king who doesn't even think anything spiritually necessarily, he's just going to go in and steal from the temple, that's an attack on God's people. And it's always spiritual. Number 23. 
God called it that Antiochus Epiphanes would try to invade Egypt again, but he would fail. Look at verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall turn, be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged. That's exactly what happened. Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 and 167 BC tried to invade Egypt again, but he was threatened by the Romans. That's what the ships of Kittim are referencing. The Romans said, don't you dare go into the south. So he was embarrassed. He was humiliated. He was mad. He turned back, and here's where the plot starts to thicken. Here's where the soup starts to boil right here. Number 24, Antiochus Epiphanes, God called it, that he was going to respond to this humiliation by taking his anger out on the Jews who happened to be right on his way home. Verse 30 says, he shall be turned back and be enraged and take action against who? What? The Holy Covenant. That's God's people. <clears throat> number 25. I'm gonna show you how it unfolds. Verse, uh, number 25, Antiochus Epiphanes. God called it that Antiochus Epiphanes was going to defile the temple in Jerusalem. Look at verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So this is not just now I'm coming through and I'm taking them, stealing from you. Now I'm getting up in your business. I'm getting up in your kitchen right here. In 167 B.C., Antiochus decreed that the regular burnt offering, this is talking about God's people's worship. You and I might not care a whole lot about a regular burnt offering, but in those days in the nation of Israel, they made a sacrifice every morning and every evening as part of their worship to, for the atonement of their sins, a pleasing aroma to God. This is right at their heart. Antiochus takes it away. And then in December of 167 BC, he marches into the temple, sets up an idol to Zeus, the false Greek god, right in the altar, right in the holy place. And he starts offering pagan sacrifices on it and sprinkling pig's blood, which was unclean for Jewish people, doing all sorts of terrible, terrible things. God called that like 350 years before it happened. Number 26, Antiochus Epiphanes, God said he was going to try to lure God's people away into apostasy. Apostasy means you're following the Lord, but then you kind of turn away from that and give up on that and go a different route. Antiochus was going to try to do that. Verse 32 says, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. We'll talk about that part in a second. He's going to seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Again, there were people in Jerusalem, people in Israel, who though they were Israelites by ethnicity, they were not following the Lord with all their heart. Really, that's the whole history of Israel. There's people all through that, that yes, I'm, I'm Jewish, but they don't really regard the Lord. They don't really think of the Lord. They're doing their own thing. They're apostate. And it says that he's going to seduce those people. He's going to try to get the hooks into those people when they're vulnerable and do damage to them. Again, this is the battle behind the battle, right? It's never just about who, it's never just about who's sitting on the earthly throne. There's spiritual warfare happening right here. And it's all about who your true king is and who you worship. He was trying to give, cause the Jewish people to forsake their faith and take up Greek customs and religious practices flatter them away. Hey, this is a better path to take. Spiritual warfare. That's a spiritual warfare as the day is long right there. Number 27, here's what it says. In response to Antiochus Epiphany's persecution, 
Faithful believers in Israel are going to stand firm and they're going to act. This is powerful. Look at verse 32 still. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame and captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise will stumble. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But this says that faithful believers are going to stand firm and act. This is a reminder for us as Christians. As God's people, we cannot be passive we can't just sit here and let other people tell us what we ought to be doing in relation to our faith. We, we can't just, oh, well, you can't, you know, people in a world that's so anti-God and anti-Jesus and the whole thing, we don't take our cues from them, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, we've talked in this series in Daniel 2 about, as Christians, respecting those who are in authority over us too, right? Just because we don't like the government or like what they stand for or like what they do, that doesn't mean we have to launch a hate campaign against them, right? We ought to respect them. But what we've said in this series is where we draw the line is when we are directly ordered by those in authority over us to abandon our faith and do things we ought not to do. When you are directly ordered to sin, that's where we put the line in the sand. And that's what happened here as well. Faithful believers will stand firm. They shall stand firm and take action. They're gonna do something. They're not just going to sit there and be passive and let the world come to them. Look at, I love verse 33. The wise among the people shall make many understand. Do you know what that means? The Bible was open. In uncertain times like what we live in, the Bible needs to be open. There was teaching. There was, there was revelation given here. People were made to understand the truth. We need that in our day as much as they needed it in that day. When they stumble, they shall receive a little bit of help. A number of Jews, history tells us, they revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes in a conflict that's known as the Maccabean Revolt that lasted for a few years in the 160s BC. They answered the call to arms. They rebelled. They revolted. They resisted. This conflict happened because they stood firm. Number 28, two to go. You're doing great. God called it that some of God's people would be killed by Antiochus Epiphanes in this struggle. Verse 33, for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they'll receive a little help. Many shall join themselves to, uh, to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still waits the appointed time. It's estimated that as many as 40,000 Jews were killed during this persecution from Antiochus Epiphanes. Just like God said 350 years beforehand. And that 40,000, that's a conservative number. Some people say it's much more than that. God called it. But interestingly, this is only going to further God's plan. Antiochus Epiphanes thinks he's just wiping out these Jews, he's annoying, whatever. Remember what it said in verse 35? It said that some of the wise shall stumble, they're going to be killed, but in, in so doing, they're going to be refined, purified, and made white. This is true of every martyr that's ever given up their life for the name of Jesus Christ. The enemy thinks, there, I silenced them, they're done. Oh no, all you did is play right into God's hands because he is bringing a people to himself and he's preserving and refining. You know what this means for us? We're gonna be okay. That's what that means. Number 29, the final one is this. Antiochus, God called it that he would declare himself to be God. The last few verses in our text, it says, the king shall do as he wills 
He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every what? God. And he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. History tells us that Antiochus the, the, the fourth. That actually wasn't even his birth name. He changed his name to Antiochus Epiphanes when he became the king. And Antiochus Epiphanes, when you translate that, it literally means God manifest. Here I am. I'm God. I've now shown up before you. Terrible. And some of these things that he does right here, it says that he exalts himself. He won't listen to anyone else because he knows better. It revolves around him. He's God. Even at the end there, it's like he blesses those who honor him. That's like a picture of how God treats his children and those who love him. God is good and he blesses. And here, hey, if you buddy up to me, I'll bless you. He's claiming to be God. He's trying to act like God. He considers himself to be God, just like God said he would. Now, everybody take a breath. Okay? That was a lot of stuff. Okay? Again, you don't need to remember every name and date and place. I'm going to wrap this up by telling you why this should matter to you, okay? Why should all of this history cause me to be encouraged? Because I'm a Christian and it's 2023. This is years later. What does this have to do with me? Why should I be encouraged? Number one, you should be encouraged because God is aware of everything that happens, right? Even in the very first verse we read today, verse two, he says, and now I will show you the truth. You know what that means? He already knows it. He already knows the truth. And here, I'm going to tell it to you. God is aware of every single thing that happens. And then when history started unfolding, time after time after 29 times, it happened just the way God said it would. Yeah, because he's aware, because he knows, because he's God, and he's in control. That'd be a good place for an amen. Amen. Second thing, why should this be encouraging to me? Because God directed all of these events. In verse 6 and verse 11, places like that, there's language like this. Yeah, this attack is going to happen and so-and-so is going to take place, but, then, but it shall be given into his hand, it says. In other words, it's not that the king of the north is going to take the kingdom of the south. It's that the kingdom is going to be given to him. Who's going to give it to him? Someone bigger than him. God is going to cause it to happen. God is over all of these things, directing all of these things. Now, to be f- sure, God is good. Somebody say God is good. And God does good. Doesn't, God doesn't do the wrong thing. He's righteous. But God will allow things to happen and he'll use these things that happen to further his purposes. God directed all of these events. Everything we read today, God did that. Number three, you should be encouraged because those who are faithful to God will be preserved for the end. Some of the wise shall stumble. You know what? I don't know what persecution will look like in our day and age, but this may well happen to us. Some of the wise shall stumble. That's even possible death. But if that happens, it's so that 
we would be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end. We live in this evil, broken, crooked world and things may happen to us that are bad. God's got you. God has you. Nothing that the enemy can do to you is gonna thwart God's plan over your life. If God is for you, who can be against you? You're gonna come out on the other side. You're gonna be fine no matter what happens because God will preserve those who are faithful to him. And the fourth thing is this, and then we'll be done. This should cause you to be encouraged because God is faithful through all of this stuff that we read. In a moment, we're gonna flash a map up on the screen. Remember I said earlier, the king of the north, the king of the south, we're fighting against each other all these years. And geographically, yeah, let's have the map. Oh, that's terrible quality. Oh, well, it'll still work. Watch this, watch this. I'm not tall enough to reach it. Do you see this yellow bit here at the bottom left? That's the kingdom of the south. And do you see this blue bit that's like most of the screen? Do you see where the yellow and the blue meet toward the left of your screen? Guess what's right there in that area? Israel. All this fighting happened all around them for generations and centuries. And God was faithful to them. God still caused his purposes to come to pass. Again, I would be remiss if I didn't bring this to your mind. You and I, God's people, stuff is happening all around us, all the time. Spiritual warfare, darkness, demonic activity, conflict, violence, corruption, everything that we see in the world. But God is faithful because he did not allow his people to get crushed under this. Guess what? He's not gonna allow you to get crushed under it either because he's good. Oh, I'm sweaty. <laughs> We're gonna wrap up now. And as we do, I would just encourage you in this. This is, this is real history that took place just as God said it was going to. You know what this means? God is over the past, the present, and the future. And I'll say this to you to encourage you. If God is over your past, right? If you're a Christian, you've surrendered your life. You, you've trusted in Jesus with the sins of your past. And he's dealt with that and he's forgiven you and he's saved you. And if Jesus is also in control of your present, he's with you right now. He's walking with you. He's taking care of you. I would think that what we've seen in Daniel 11 also gives us confidence that we can trust Jesus with our future too.